Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes With Purple. This is a podcast presented by my friend Susie Dent, the world's leading lexicographer, and me, Niles Brandreth. And we rather feel, well I feel anyway, that we're living in the past because everything I do seems to be described as 2020. This is because all the things I'm doing are postponed from last year. I'm currently on a tour that was supposed to have begun in 2020. It didn't. So now we're doing it in 2021, but it's still called the 2020 tour. We had football in Europe called Euro 2020. And now we're coming to the climax of 2020 Olympics. And they should have happened last year, but they're happening this year. Are you excited, Susie Dent? Very excited. I have so many memories of growing up with the Olympics on the TV and just, you know, all, all the sprinting greats. I was majorly into sprinting and hurdles. Absolutely loved it. And of course, discovered sports that I'd never even heard of. Uh, so, And there are a few more added this year, aren't there? There's surfing and skateboarding and baseball are all adding the list now. So it's, um, it's incredible. But I have to say, I don't know if I'm the only one that during the Euros 2020, I just for one second had a sort of a bit of a blip in my mind where I just thought, uh, are we in 2020? Uh, it's that kind of total blurs day feeling, isn't it? Where you actually, particularly because of the pandemic, you just don't know where you are. Is that a word you've just invented, Blur's Day? No, Blur's Day was the name given to the total loss of a sense of time during the sort of lockdown period where you literally didn't know where you were. So just explain to me and to anyone who doesn't know how this works, how does Blur's Day get into the dictionary and will it be in the dictionary? I doubt that that one will. Uh, so as we've discussed before, quite a few COVID neologisms did make their way into the dictionary, including COVIDiot. But Blur's Day, I think, will probably stay in the sidelines. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of useful word that will no doubt come back. I mean, you have Blur's Day during the, famously during the the Merineum, as they call it, that period between Christmas and uh, and New Year. So, you know, there are times of the year and times of our lives where actually we totally lose track of time and days of the week. Can I ask you, is Merineum in the <laughs> dictionary? And what <laughs> does that mean? Yet, not what yet, not yet. What does Merineum so mean? So Merineum is that sort of limbo period that straddles Christmas and the New Year, a bit as the, you know, the perineum straddles parts of the body. And Rachel Riley told me the other day that the distance between one Nando's and the other is called the peri-perineum. 
<laughs> I love so that. But I, I tell you, I think words like merineum and blur's day should be in the dictionary because 200 years from now, mm. people reading novels set in the early 21st century or even newspapers from this time may not know what those words mean and will go to the dictionary and say, what was a blur's day mm. to people in the 2020s? And they need to be told. Yeah, I think that one hasn't gained as much traction as as Mary Neum. I hold out more more hope for Mary Neum, but it is you know obviously it's a humorous coinage. But yeah, it's got every chance if we use it enough. Well, you mentioned traction, uh, so let's begin on the track. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the language of the Olympic Games. Maybe we should start with the story of the ancient Olympics because I know it goes back a long time. And explain to me why the Olympics are called the Olympics. Well, they were named because of their location, which was at Olympia, and that was a sacred site, is a sacred site, located near the western coast of the Peloponnese uh, Peninsula in southern Greece. I thought it was an offshoot of the Circle Line, just near between Earl's Court and... um, uh... (laughs) Well, that too. I wonder which came first. Um, Anyway, the Olympics were held every four years between August the 6th and September the 19th, and it was part of a religious festival that honoured Zeus, the god Zeus. Um, and the first written records that we have date to 70, sorry, 776 BC. And a cook won the only event at that. He was called Coriabus and it was a 192 metre foot race called the Stad. And that's that's where we get the modern stadium because a Stad was an ancient Roman or Greek measure of length. Um, but yeah, so the, the games were named for their location and They were so important that historians began to measure time by the four years that were in between the Olympic Games and they became known as Olympiads. So they were markers of time. We were talking about time earlier. You have to remember that in those Olympic Games, you were only looking at freeborn male citizens, no slaves, no women, and particularly no married women who couldn't even go to watch. That was the way it was. Freeborn male citizens were the only people allowed to participate. And were they naked? Why have I got it into my head they were naked? Because of a gymnasium having something to do with yes. naked people. I don't know. If, I'm not sure if they were naked when they actually ran. That would have been a slight, a slight <laughs> and a half. But um, they would have been very buff. I'm sure, and oh. and probably well oiled to show off their um, their physique. We hope they weren't entirely naked. You know, one of my favourite uh, sayings: the actor and dancer Robert Helpman, who went to the opening of O Calcutta, a nude review in the 1960s in London, and came away saying, "Well, the trouble with naked dancing is that not everything stops when the music stops." <laughs> Uh, Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. uh, Can you imagine naked racing? Oh, well. Anyway, on we go. So we assume they're wearing little outfits. Yes, we we assume that. Uh, So (laughs) moving on from that one race, there were various sporting events added. So there was the Diolos... I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. It's D-I-A-U-L-O-S, which translates as double pipe. And that was twice around the stadium. So I suppose roughly equal to 400 metres today. There was the Dolikos, which was a long race. Um, That's what that means literally. And that's probably 1,500 or even 5,000 metres. The pentathlon, which we know from today, the five events. Boxing was added in 688 BC. Chariot racing in 680 BC. And then something called 
pancreation, which translates as all force, pancreation. And it's a combi- it was a combination of boxing and wrestling with no rules, really. It was really dangerous and everything was permitted, apparently, except biting, gouging, gouging your opponent's eyes or attacking the genitals. Otherwise, everything went. Can you unpack, while we picture this image of these people doing everything but uh, etc., can you unpack some of the words in all this for us? Begin with the the, the running. You mentioned pentathlon. That's Greek penta is five, isn't it? Yes. So athlon, the, the athlon of pentathlon, goes back to the Greek for competing for a prize because an athlon was a prize. And that's, of course, where we get athlete from today, someone who is proficient in sports, but also takes part in competitive events. So that's the pentathlon. Then you've got the decathlon, which is 10 events, decathlon, uh, etc. But all based on that athlon, meaning a prize. And words like run and sprint, Mm. um, do they have an interesting... They all come from very different places. So sprint is um, a Scandinavian origin. Oh. Actually didn't come into English until the late 18th century, but there's various cognates, as we would say. So similar words in Scandinavian languages. Um, run is Germanic. So in German, you've got rennen as well as laufen. And that has been around in various forms since Old English. So, you know, it's a really good example of just how long uh, these words have been around but also just the different journeys that they've taken sticking with running for a moment a uh, hurdling where mm. does the uh, hurdling i suppose comes from the word hurdle and a hurdle is the is the thing you put up that people have got to jump over yeah i and... used to love hurdles oh really oh that was my favorite thing i used to set up little jumps in the garden uh yes that's that's again germanic it meant a kind of temporary fence if you like but in german it was a hurder with an umlaut um, but yeah, that's hurdling. I, I loved that sport. Go now to some of the, the throwing events, things like the discus, which I do associate very much with the Greek games. I don't know why. I suppose I can see that figure uh, like a statue of him uh, holding the discus and about to swing it round. Where does the discus come from? That is simply a straight borrowing from uh, the Greek discos with a K. And you're right, that was the, um, one of the events in the ancient Greek uh, sporting list. And disco as in a shape like a disc, looking like a circular yes, disc. exactly. And the, the disco that we go to, if we're allowed to, because we've been double jabbed mm. uh, of, of a, an evening, is that anything to do with the discus? Yeah, because at a discotheque, basically, obviously, people are dancing at a discotheque, but originally it was a collection of records or a record library. So it was a collection of discs and it was basically on the pattern of bibliotheque, which is a library. But the javelin has nothing to do with jiving and uh, you're throwing the javelin, but you're not throwing some shapes with your jiving. They're it's not, not connected. A, no, nothing to do with jive. Um, <laughs> so javelin is of Celtic origin. Um, so, yeah, we can add that one to the list What did um, it mean? as well. I mean, right from well, the beginning. Well, it's the same thing. It was a light spear. Um, ah. And then it was a light spear that was thrown in competitive sport. It's amazing what a... What a melting pot the language is. I know. You, it's, it Take any subject like this and you see, just as I say, the different stories and the different adventures that people have done. And in the early Olympics, was it always one person against one person? I mean, you know, individual runners, individual shot put throwers. I don't know whether they had teams. That's a really good question, actually. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, if you, in AD 393, the emperor at the time, who was a Christian, called for a ban on all the pagan festivals. So he 
ended the ancient Olympic tradition um, and obviously been, been going on for some time. And then they weren't restarted until 1896. And that was in Athens. And that was all down to someone called Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who was of, um, of France, as you might tell from my terrible French accent. Um, and he was dedicated to the promotion of games and sport. He'd visited the ancient Olympic site apparently and thought, okay, this is what we need to revive. And yeah, just, I mean, had real drive and ambition, I guess, to actually make it happen. And in the early days, not many countries took part. I mean, in the 1890s, when he began to revive it, how many countries were there? Well, if you think of the rings, the Olympic rings, which are ah. blue and yellow and black and green and red, those are interlocking rings and they represented the five participating continents, Africa, Asia, America, Europe and Oceania. And the idea is that those colours, together with the white background of the Olympic flag, could then go towards the colours of every single nation's flag who were participating at the time. Then there was the Winter Olympics and we've got the Paralympics, which are amazing. So incredible, but that there was a hiatus for such a long time because it was considered pagan. And I think in the first modern Olympics, 13 countries took part. There were just 43 events and it's grown and grown and grown. I mean, the, the ones I like are things, odd things, like that synchronised swimming. <laughs> uh, I find that yeah. so amusing and slightly ridiculous, but quite fun in its own way. If you could choose, well, if you had to choose, if you were forced to choose one sport that you had to participate in, what would it be? Would it be that? Well, no, <laughs> it would be so ridiculous. Because <laughs> no, I don't like going under the water too much. Uh, okay. I mean, at school, I used to do running. I mean, yeah, I, I, me I ran for my county once. Did too you? slowly, it turned out. Um, but I did at least run for my county once. And I was very lucky because from an early age, I somehow got to know Sebastian Coe, uh. who is a double, if not a triple, Olympic gold medal winner as a runner. And I remember he once showed me his gold medals. And he told me that he took them to visit schools to encourage young people to take up competitive sport. And he would wear these gold medals. And at almost every school he went to, there was a child who would come up and try to bite the gold medal, assuming it was a chocolate coin. No. Yeah, he said everywhere he went um, with these gold medals, he, you know, if he took them off to give the talk and left them on a table, he would see a small child there trying to work out where the gold foil could be peeled away because there was bound to be chocolate inside it. Isn't that marvellous? Yeah. I think it's pretty impressive to have more than one gold medal, don't you? Oh, um, I mean, yeah. And, but when I incredible. first met him, when he was in his competitive, I mean, he's still right fit. And amazingly, his hair seems darker now that he's in his 60s than it did when he was in his 20s. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, he hardly ate a thing. Really? And he he drank, I would sit down and have a cup of tea, and he'd say, oh, yes, I'd have some hot water, please. And then he would take a small lemon and oh, yeah. cut a little slice of lemon, yeah. and he'd pop that into his tea, and that would be his breakfast. Oh, I, I tell you who else did that, just um, to add my own name dropping to the list, which will only resonate with our British listeners, but Angela Rippon did exactly the same thing. That was, she swore by uh, hot water and lemon at the start of her day. Um, before we go, because we're due a break in a second, I just wanted to come back to marathon. That is the last thing in the world that I could do. You could not drag me to do a marathon. I just would not last. I was really good at the first 80 metres of the 100 metres. I was as hot as anything. And then come 80 metres, I would just either be sick or just, just flail at the last 20 metres. So it 
it never really worked happily to is me. Is that the same? Me. You see, it means nothing to me because of my generation. Mm. I, I'm brought up in the 1950s and 60s. I think of 100 yards. And there was a day when I could run 100 yards in 10 seconds. Wow. Yeah, it sounds a lot, but I think it's not as long as 100 metres. That's no. what's annoying. It's 0.91 of a metre is a yard. Ah. So actually, that would have been perfect for me, 100 yards. 80 metres, as I say, I was I could beat anybody and then it all fell apart. Well, you were born too late. You mentioned marathon there. Yes, I mean, I know that's 26 miles and 385 yards. Yes, and you know the story, I'm sure. I don't know the story. I've, I, there's a place called Marathon that I know. Is it like yes. Olympia being Olympic? Well, it's on the coast of Attica. So that's in eastern Greece. And in 490 BC, the Athenians won. They, they beat an invading Persian army at Marathon. And there are various historical accounts, uh, one of which that describes how the, the herald Pheidippides ran 150 miles from Athens to Sparta to get help before the battle. And then the legend changed a little bit and it changed to the story of a messenger running from Marathon to Athens, which was a distance of 22 miles with news of the victory, but he fell dead on arrival. And oh. the first modern Olympic Games in 1896 then instituted, I suppose, the marathon as a long distance race. But fortunately, they based it on the shorter version of the story, which was 22 miles rather than 150. Goodness. In in the United Kingdom, uh, from where this podcast comes, and we're very conscious that we have a large international audience, uh, we're very aware, people of my generation are very aware of the four-minute mile, mm. because this was a, a record that nobody had broken until the early 1950s, something like 1954. And I'm of a vintage that I actually met and indeed got to know a bit the three runners who were most involved with that, Roger Bannister, who was a doctor. He was an amateur runner. He was still being a doctor at the time. Christopher Chataway uh, and Chris Brasher, they were all involved in this. Some of them were pacers and Roger Bannister uh, scored it. But now it doesn't mean so much because we don't think there probably isn't a mile-long race anymore. It will be the 1,000 metres, will it, or the 2,000 metres? Yeah, and a mile is always, it's always configured as quite a long distance, really, in the mind's eye, because for the Romans, it was 1,000 paces marched by troops. So this was mille passus, 1,000 paces. Ah. And a stag was one eighth of a mile, as I say, and that was borrowed as the distance covered by their foot races. But what I loved about Roger Bannister is that he said he had learned his running, not only for fun, but as a scramble to the nearest air raid shelter during the Battle of Britain. So he would imagine the bombs and the machine oh. gun fire raining on him if he didn't run fast, which is That's incredible. such a great line. And yeah. it reminds you of a sort of generation of sports people mm. who were, in a sense, they were amateurs and mm. they, they did other things. And it was extraordinary. Yeah, and, also, and he finished his shift, took a train to Oxford oh. and then just went on to reshape the future and the history of running. It's incredible. It's fantastic. And if you met these blokes, they were very modest, actually. They, they mm. you know, it was just one of the things that they had done. And in a way, it was good for them to have other things to do because the problem with being an athlete is that you're, for the most part, you're time limited. Yes, the same for lexicographers, I have to say. Um, oh, no. Lexicographers <laughs> can go on forever. So long as you can tell us that a mile comes from miles, the thousand steps that soldiers took, we're learning something. You can keep teaching us that, uh, Susie Dent, when you are 100 years of age. Only hope for that. Should we take a break? And then I want to come back and touch on the verb that everyone really hates, which is meddling. Meddling. 
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple, where Giles and I are talking about the Olympics, um, which, of course, we are right in the middle of. And I mentioned before the break, the verb that really gets on people's nerves. Actually, there are two. And of course, we always blame this on the Americans, as we always do. But there's meddling, as in winning a medal, and podiuming which mm. came about just a few Olympics ago, I think, and um, really, really rubbed people up the wrong way. Um, I, I should just say that actually, you know, this is nothing new. I, I know I, I'm like a broken record when I say this, but it really isn't new that we take nouns and make them into verbs. We have been doing this forever. Shakespeare famously did it as well. I can do with meddling. I don't mind that, although it's a little bit confusing because it sounds like interfering meddling. But podiuming, I have to say, I kind of stopped there. I didn't like that. Did you? I've accepted it all because, okay. as you know, Good. I'm an enthusiast for the work of P.G. Woodhouse. Yes. Uh, English novelist, often based in America, who created Jeeves and Worcester and those other characters. And he often turned nouns into verbs. For example, he would have Bertie Worcester ankling down to the club. To ankle hmm. down to the cup. You can see his little ankles uh, pattering along the pavement. And I always find that rather attractive. So I think it's quite an amusing way of extending the language. Yes. So if you can ankle down to your club, you can certainly uh, meddle at the Olympics. Well, uh, yes. I've just looked it up, actually, Giles. And the very first use of appearing on a podium at a public event and podiuming is from 1948. Goodness. And there's a US newspaper that says, I podiumed as I'd never podiumed before because Eleanor was next to me. Oh. But the idea of finishing in first, second or third in a competition is, is in the 90s. It is nothing new. But I'll tell you where medal goes back from, goes back to you because it's quite a nice one. The medieval Latin medallia meant half a denarius, a Roman coin. And the idea is that there was very little difference in appearance between that half a denarius and a medal. Mm. Um, so that's where that one comes from. And a medallion is a little bit later, and that simply meant a larger medal, a medallion. Very good. Did we touch on arena? Have you told us about ah, the well, origin of that word? Yes, arena has got slightly dark history because oh. that goes back to the Arabic for sand. Um, and it goes, I suppose, goes back to the Colosseum and gladiatorial combat because when blood was spilt and shed, as it so often was, sand would be strewn across the arena in order to soak up the blood. Gosh. Mm. Well, look, if you've enjoyed hearing Susie telling us about the origin of all these words associated with sport, athletics and the Olympics, thank you. But if you have got queries, uh, we will endeavour to answer them. Do get in touch with us. It's purple at something 
somethingelse.com. And that's something spelt without a G, just to be perverse. Purple at somethingelse.com. And we think of our listeners as the purple people, and they think of themselves as the purple people, which is then fantastic. I told you, Susie, didn't I, how I was recently filming on a narrowboat and travelling through Cambridge, and out of the um, boathouse ran a young man coming towards me. Yes, you did. Calling out, I'm a purple person. Yes, I'm a purple I person. I, which I think is fantastic. So purple people do keep in touch. And also tell us tales. If we have any, oh, this would be rather marvellous, if we have any Olympic athletes who are tuned in, who may be perhaps listening to us while training, I don't know if they're doing that in Tokyo. Because um, it's been slightly weird. I do know, having spoken to some of the um, people who are there during the Olympics, they are finding it quite strange. They're not being proper crowds mm. in the stadia. Yeah. And so though we've been enjoying it on the box, on television... It's been a bit odd for them not having the the cheers and the shouting. No, I think the whole thing must be quite a strange experience. And I think it will be very different. But, you know, nothing, to use a terrible pun, will extinguish the flame, I don't think. There's still a magnificence about the Olympics and and hopefully it will still mean just as much. Um, You mentioning puns there leads us nicely on to the people who've been sending us in some wonderful punny shop names. Thank you, all of you, for sending us those. You brought us a lot of joy over the past few weeks and they've been coming in from all over the world. We really enjoyed this one, the Vinyl Resting Place, (laughs) V-I-N-Y-L, Resting Place, an old record shop, the Vinyl Resting Place. There was a green grocer called Melancholy, N-E-L-O-N-C-A-U-L-I, and So It Seems, the tailor from Belfast, So It Seems, a tailor from Belfast. But we were having a bit of a competition, weren't we, offering a prize? Yes, and top of the pile comes in from Lynn MacDonald of Airdrie. Do you remember the Italian cafe jars? It was called Bacchialdi's, which Mm. isn't really Italian. It's located around the back of Aldi, which is, Mm. for anyone who is (laughs) not familiar with our low-budget supermarkets, is uh, is exactly that. (laughs) But Bacchialdi's sounds so much better. Bacchialdi's, yes. Thank you so much, uh, Lynn, for that. And we will get a special Something Rise With Purple mug sent out to you. But as you say, thanks to all of them. I had some brilliant ones sent me on Twitter as well, including some fictional ones such as Polenta to go around and that kind of thing. So thank you for all of those. Um, but we have some correspondence as well, don't we? We do. Janet uh, Worley from Northamptonshire has been in touch. Uh, hi, Susie and Giles. I'm rather curious about the word career. C-A-R-E-E-R. This word can have both the meaning of a job with stability and progression, but also moving in an uncontrolled way, careering mm. around. Is there any connection in the origin of the two? There absolutely is. And the core idea behind all of the meanings of career is of running or progressing along a course of some kind. And they're all based on the Latin carus, C-A-R-R-U-S, a wheeled vehicle, which of course gave us car, it also gave us chariot. And when career was first used in English, it meant a race course but also a short gallop at full speed. So from there, the modern sense developed. So you have the stages in a person's professional employment, employment, so it's the course along which their working life is running. And then if you imagine a chariot race of rushing headlong and hurtling down that particular course, that will also give you the other sense of career. Excellent. Careering around the corner, that kind of thing. 
Thank you for that career advice. Uh, Mike Horn from Thelwall in Cheshire has written in to say, on your recent podcast about camping words and phrases, you very quickly passed the word rucksack as a simple German derivative. But certainly when I grew up, we wouldn't use this term. My father would have called a bag that he carried on his back a haversack or a knapsack or even the humble duffel bag Mm. that I would take to school with me. Where did any of these terms come from? It seems to me much more mysterious. So what do you think? Okay, thanks for that, Mike. Well, um, Haversack is German as well. So in German, a Habersack, so H-A-B-E-R and then Sack, was a bag that was used by soldiers to carry oats for their horses. And the word comes from an old dialect German word, Haber, meaning oats, and then Sack, meaning a sack or a bag. So it was an oat bag for horses originally. A knapsack... Again, Germanic, I think it directly came to us from Dutch, actually, but that goes back to the German knappen with the hard K, knappen, which meant to bite food, and then sack again, meaning a bag. So it was first used by soldiers, again, for carrying food supplies. So it was a snack bag, if you like. And just a reminder that a rucksack comes from the German uh, rucksack, which is uh, your rücken is your back. So it's a bag to carry on your back. Well, I hope that answers the question, Mike. And thank you for your postscript. He adds, thanks for your great podcast, which has seen me through the pandemic and now through walking the West Highland Way with my knapsack on my back. Oh, and perhaps with this duffel bag, I forgot to mention that one. Um, Duffel is a coarse woolen cloth. Uh, It's got a really thick nap and that goes back to Duffel and that's the name of a town in Belgium where it was originally made. I used to have a duffel coat. Yes, me too. With funny sort of funny buttons. What were those buttons called? Yeah, there's toggles, those little toggle buttons. Yeah, Toggle buttons. Mm. We must have done an episode on that, on the duffel coat. There's probably one. Let's do, as winter approaches, let's do one on on things that one wears in the winter. Okay. That's the joy of language. It's (laughs) limitless. And Susie's capacity for coming up with words that surprise and delight us is limitless too. What have you got in your knapsack today? A trio of interesting words, Susie Dent. Okay. Well, some of us, I suppose, we are now able to move out and about. I know that's not the case for everybody. So uh, apologies for this, although there are still some videnda to see at home. And videnda are things that some of us can now return to. They're things worth seeing. So you might just add some videnda to your list of adventures if you've got a staycation coming up. And don't get me started on whether staycation means staying at home or whether it means staying in your own country, because that is hotly contested almost every day on Twitter. But yes, videnda, things worth seeing. That's the first one. And to join the videnda are the tasenda. Tasenda, that's T-A-C-E-N-D-A. And they are things that you mustn't speak about. So yes, things that are not to be talked about at all. Tasenda, that could be useful. Yes, linked to tacit and tassere to be quiet in in Latin. And finally, one that Chaucer was quite fond of, and just tread carefully with this one. I think we might have covered it in our Valentine's episode. But if you were to call someone a pig's knee in Chaucerian times, you would be calling them darling, your darling. And actually, it's not your pig's knee, it's a pig's eye. So it's like pig's nigh or pig's knee. And it means pig's 
I, and for some reason, that was seen as an object of affection. So, as I say, go carefully with this one, but it just always makes me smile. But I rather like that, my darling. Pigsney. Oh, you're my pigsney. <laughs> I'm putting on a funny accent for it. You're my pigsney. Yeah, you've turned Scottish. Uh, um, yeah. Do you have a poem for us? Yes, you're my pigsney, you're my okay. friend. And we had a lovely reaction to the poem by Elizabeth Jennings that I read a week oh, or yes, so ago about friendship. Mm. So I, I, I've been digging up poems about friendship and I've come across one that, well, actually, it's not a poem. It's the lyric of a song, but I think it works as a poem as well. It's by Cole Porter. If you're ever in a jam, here I am. If you're ever in a mess, SOS. If you ever feel so happy you land in jail, I'm your bail. It's friendship. Friendship. Just a perfect blendship. When other friendships have been forgot, ours will still be hot. If you're ever up a tree, phone to me. If you're ever down a well, ring my bell. If you ever lost your teeth and you're out to dine, borrow mine. It's friendship, friendship, just a perfect blendship. When other friendships have been forgot, ours will still be great. It's friendship, friendship, just a perfect blendship. When other friendships have been forgot, ours will still be it. Lovely. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, we hope that you found it gorgeous too. Um, not sure whether you will find us gorgeous, but hopefully the podcast is something that brings you pleasure and joy and a little bit of an oasis as it does to us. As Charles says, please do get in touch at purple at something else.com. Something rhymes with purple is, as always, a something else production produced by Lawrence Bassett, Harriet Wells, with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod, Jay Beale, and. Um, well, I suppose he's somebody's pig's. Isn't it's it? not ours anymore. I haven't no. seen him for such a long time. <laughs> Golly! Where are you? Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.